If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Beeb's History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the fourth of our January 2012 podcasts. Let me just remind you, Beeb's History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com. We're on twitter.com slash historyextra and facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week... From the point of view of the New World peoples... The arrival of the old world peoples was a disaster. That was Peter Watson on the moment when the Europeans arrived in the Americas. It doesn't smell any different to me, it just smells like an old book. But I think as soon as you realise, or people have realised, that it's human skin that's been tanned, Mm -hmm. it takes on a different guise. Bristol Museum's curator Gail Hallward on an odd object in the collection of the recently opened M-Shed Museum. Before we get started, uh, we're approaching the 100th issue of the BBC History Magazine podcast. So, in recognition of this event, I'm going to try to introduce a new feature, which I'm ingeniously calling Ask the Historian. The idea is that I'll find a cutting-edge historian of a particular subject and ask you, our faithful podcast listeners, to tell me what questions you'd like me to put to him or her. We're going to start with Dr Thomas Asperidge, reader in medieval history at Queen Mary University of London and an expert on the Crusades. He's currently presenting a BBC series on the Crusades, in fact. So get in touch with any questions you have on the Crusades in general or any points that you'd like to raise specifically from his TV series, if you've seen it, and I'll endeavour to get answers from him. I'll be talking to him on Monday the 6th of February, so get your questions over to me before then, either by tweeting me at twitter.com forward slash history extra or by email to podcast at historyextra.com. Okay, in 1492, an unofficial experiment that had lasted for over 15,000 years came to an end. The old and new worlds, separated ever since the Bering Strait had melted, were reunited with the arrival of Columbus. In the intervening periods, the two populations had developed in very different ways. Historian Peter Watson is the author of The Great Divide, a new book that compares the progress of humanity on both sides of the Atlantic. The magazine's deputy editor Rob Attar spoke to him recently about what happened when these isolated civilizations met up again. Okay, so we're talking here about the Great Divide between the Americas and Eurasia. When did this divide come about? Well, I think it's a new, in a way, it's a new period of, of history. Uh, 15,000 BC to roughly speaking 1500 Mm. AD and the way to think of it is this that early man develops in Africa what 180,000 years ago he migrates out of Africa to populate the world depending on the latest evidence whether you believe it or not but sometime between 125,000 and 80,000 years ago and he spreads out he when I say he I mean he and Mm. she of course Uh, And he gets to Siberia between 20,000 
18,000 years ago during the Ice Age, when it's freezing cold, the Earth is covered in these great ice sheets, and the sea levels are 400 feet below where they are now. And so when he gets to what would become Siberia, it turns out that the area between Siberia and Alaska, which is now sea, mm. the Bering Strait, was then land. And so he and she walk into America sometime around between 16,500 and 15,000 years before Christ. And then the Ice Age at about 14,000 BC comes to an end and the Bering Strait refills with water. And so you've got, for the first time in history, a population in the Americas and a population in Eurasia and Africa, in other words, in the New World and the Old World, who are separated from each other, who don't know about each other, and remain separate until Columbus discovers America in 1492, let's call it 1500 AD. So from 15,000 BC until 1500 AD, you have the Great Divide, two groups of people, two large groups of people, separated from each other, each unaware of each other, and the idea of the book is to compare their development during those 16,500 years and to see what similarities and what differences there are. Because they are, to all intents and purposes, the same people. They are the same people. It seems that uh, the, Amer- the people who became the early Americans had one or two psychological differences in the sense that they had, their myths are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'd had uh, one or two different experiences. But the genetic evidence shows that Native Americans are essentially uh, closely related to the Northeast Asians, Mongolese, Mongolians, uh, Siberians, Northern Chinese, and a few from further away. There's some evidence in the genetics that there were two and maybe even three waves of migration. But no, essentially, uh, Native Americans come from uh, Northeast Asia. Do they still retain any traces of their Northeast Asian origins, any cultural similarities? Well, they... uh, they retain some genetic similarities, mm. first and foremost. There are, their genes are very similar. They have, their teeth are very similar. They have various bodily uh, manifestations, like a thing called Mongol spot, which is a purple spot at the base of the spine, with which newborn children uh, show. And that happens in China and in America. The spot goes away after a bit. The cultural similarities are mainly in language and mainly in myths, that there are two or three close links between the language, particularly of North American Indians and uh, Chinese or or Siberians. And as I said, the myths are mainly having to do with when the ice melted at the end of the Ice Age and the water slipped off, the meltwater slipped off into the sea, a huge weight was lifted off the land. And so the land rose up hmm. 
vis-a-vis the sea. And so you find that the North Americans and the Siberians have these land, what are called land uh, rising myths, myths of the land emerging out of the sea. Sometimes they explain this by birds went down and, and pecked a piece of land from the bottom of the ocean and, and brought it up. But these are myths that you find nowhere else in the world. And the feeling amongst geologists and mythologists is that this reflects the way that the land rose in comparison to the sea after the heavy weight of the ice was taken off it. And you see this in Canada, where there are various uh, levels of beach, there are photographs of this, uh, separated by hundreds of years, and there are um, uh, settlements along these lines of beach, and people would have been aware that a settlement that at one stage was on the seashore, Mm. later on was two or three hundred feet above the sea. And so that was shared between the Siberians and the North North Americans. Um, So when they did finally reunite about 1500 AD, what do you think were the fundamental differences between the two sides? Well, I think the most fundamental difference uh, was in ideology, that I think that the old world, the dominant weather factor over the last 8,000 years, this is a consequence of the end of the Ice Age, the dominant weather factor has been the declining strength of the monsoon. And the result of that has been that the main form of worship in the old world has been fertility worship. Mm -hmm. And in the new world, the main uh, climatic factor that's been happening is the increasing strength of El Nino. Um, And we all have experience of El Nino, what we perhaps don't realise is that all those years ago El Nino only happened once or twice a century. And so just as the monsoon has been weakening, the El Nino has been, if not strengthening, getting far more frequent. And so this, combined with the fact that the New World civilizations of the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayans and the Zapotecs uh, has been in an area of what you might call dangerous weather. They've been surrounded by El Ninos, they've been surrounded by active volcanoes. They're on the edge of the Pacific and Nazca plates, so they, they have lots of earthquakes, they have lots of cyclones, they have far more hurricanes than anybody in the world. The New World civilizations have been surrounded by dangerous, extreme weather, and so that's what mm. they worship. And this is important for the following reason, that if you worship fertility, sooner or later the cycles of the world mean that things start to grow again. In other words, your worship works. It pays off. It pays off. (laughs) It's supplication, if you like. Whereas in the new world, the worship was to stop these horrible things, these earthquakes, these cyclones, these volcanoes, El Nino, to stop things from happening. And of course, the natural rhythms of the world means it doesn't work. And uh, so religion, worship in the old world works, worship in the new world doesn't work, which is why you get what for me is the most interesting difference historically, that in the old world you have human sacrifice, 
because I believe that human sacrifice comes from catastrophe. Mm. Catastrophes happen, people die, people are injured, uh, people disappear, or their bodies are found, lots of blood is shed, and the idea arises that the gods need human blood to survive. That happened in the old world, as it happened in the new world, but because there were domesticable mammals in the old world, which is the next difference mm. that I've found, there are over a dozen mammals in the old world, the horse, the, the cow, the sheep, the goat, the camel, etc., who were domesticated. These became candidates for sacrifice instead of humans, which is obviously pretty traumatic for the relatives. Mm. Whereas in the new world, where you only have four domesticable mammals, the llama, the guanaco, the alpaca, and the vicuna, all of which are very small, none of which are beasts of burden, um, none of which were domesticated quite in the way that the horse and the cow and the sheep and the goat were domesticated. They never took over the role of sacrifice, which was provide, confined, rather, to people. And so what you get in the old world is that sacrifice, human sacrifice, dies out, and then blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of domestic animals, dies out when you get the idea of monotheism, an abstract non-human mm. god, who doesn't need blood. Whereas in the new world, you get a quite extraordinary exaggeration and increase in uh, sacrifice, such that at the time of the, of the conquest, the Aztecs were sacrificing tens of thousands of people a year. And they were fighting wars, not to kill people, mm. but to capture people so they could be sacrificed. And so you get this terrible difference, very illuminating difference, in my view, between uh, supplicati supplicatory religions in the old world and propitiatory religions in the new world, resulting in uh, terrible sacrifices amongst the Aztecs and the Incas and earlier on the Mayans and other civilizations. That to me is the big difference. And is there also a difference between, say, the groups like the Inca and the Maya and the Aztecs and the North American um, Indians who perhaps didn't live in such dramatic weather conditions? Were they also as keen on things like human sacrifice? Uh, yes, there seems to have been sacrifice, human sacrifice throughout the Americas. Mm. Because although um, the North Americans do not have the cyclones and the earthquakes and the El Nino, direct El Nino phenomenon that the South Americans and Central Americans have, the shape of North America is like a, what people have called a thermal trumpet. You have down the west side the Rockies and down mm. the east side the Appalachians, which are very wide at the top and very narrow at the bottom. And this cr creates tornadoes. So I think something like 70 or 80% of the world's tornadoes are between the two mountain ranges of North America. So they, they have violent weather as well, but they didn't have, and now we come to a different matter, uh, they didn't have maize until very late on. Right. They, the, the, the old world had cereals, uh, which spread very rapidly with the help of domesticated mammals. The New World only had roots and tubers, which didn't spread at all, 
without because of its its biology and because there were very few domesticable mammals and so you didn't get a grain-based civilization until much later in the americas and very very late hmm. in the north americans north americans practice sacrifice but not as much as the central and south americans did i mean they they had fairly stable life ways uh, the indians of the prairies had the bison and there they were hunter gatherers and killed the bison in a very very stable system that lasted until his, you know for millennia until mm. historical times the indians as we call them up on the north pacific northwest pacific coast after the sea level stabilized at about 6000 bc they had shoals and shoals of salmon so they had an abundance of food america's always been abundant in food and that made again for a stability in the of the society so uh america was basically american society was basically much more static than old world society which was far more because of cereals because of domesticable mammals beasts of burden therefore the wheel mm. was a much more mobile society also it was east west in orientation so hours of daylight mean rainfall temperatures were much more similar in the old world than in the new all this came together to create a far more mobile rapid old world compared with a more stationary uh, new world I mean, I'm not saying which one is is better. They were just mm. very different. In addition to which, the New World, for some strange reason, has 80 to 90 percent. Although the the land mass of the New World is much smaller than the mm. land mass of the Old World, for some strange reason, the New World has 80 to 90 percent of the world's hallucinogens, psychotropic right. plants. And the result of that is that New World religions made far more use of this. Uh, their ceremonies made use of psychotropic uh, agents. People went into trance. They came under the influence of drugs. And this made the religious experiences in the New World far more vivid than in the Old World. That also was perhaps or perhaps made them more static hmm. that they didn't uh, want to go anywhere they stayed close to these plants which they enjoyed and which by means of which as they saw it they entered other worlds um, that they uh, found fascinating they felt they were in touch with the gods they felt they were in touch with where they would go after death and so forth the final factor I think is that uh, in the old world, you had uh, two great east-west highways. One was along the coast, through the Mediterranean, down through the Euphrates and the Tigris, into the Gulf, across through India, down through Singapore, into that mass of islands between Southeast Asia and Australia, that made for basically ease of travel, seafaring travel, beachcombing, in an east-western mm direction north of that there were the great steppes i mean the steppes of the world include the prairies include the pampas of argentina but they were not 
they did not have the impact that the great steppes of Eurasia had because the great steppes of Eurasia had the horse. There was no horse in the Americas. And so you got, together with the horse and cattle, you got this form of life that never existed in the New World, the pastoral nomad. And the pastoral nomads were very, very creative because it was a very unstable society. They created riding, they created milking, they created driving, they created many weapons, and they introduced into the old world culture a sort of, uh, how can I put it, a sort of uh, form of creative instability. Hmm. They fostered war, they fostered competition, all of which uh, provoked innovation as well as war, uh, which was made the old world a far more unstable, but arguably a far more creative place than the new world. And this finally led, not just the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and all of that, uh, and fostered fantastic trade, but it's arguable that the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, who were pastoral nomads, hmm. Because they were pastoral nomads, conceived the idea of one God who ruled over all the various terrains that they inhabited during the course of the year. And this is one very persuasive theory put forward by an Israeli scholar. The point being, then, that the idea of one God, one abstract God, without really any human qualities mm. did not any longer need blood sacrifice and this is where the old practice of sacrifice died out and this is the most important difference in my view between the old world and the new because as many scholars have said firstly the invention of Jewish monotheism and then Christianity and the idea of an abstract God who nonetheless can be known mm provokes the idea of scholarship, of inquiry, and that leads to progress and to science and so forth. And this makes the old world, according to this theory, a far more curious entity than the new world. And so you get this development between the birth of Christ and the Renaissance a steadily widening, widening field of knowledge and a steadily growing field of science which culminates in the Renaissance and that culminates you know, in the methods of seafaring which enable the old world to discover the new rather mm. than, than vice versa. So what I try to do in the book is to put all this into a, a narrative or two narratives that, that lead up to this, you know, incredible encounter between the two worlds. And so when the Europeans did encounter the Native Americans, what did they put the differences between them down to? Well, it was a real mystery for them because their sacred texts, the Bible, hmm. the Quran, and so forth, made no mention of the New World. Um, and people, you know, for, I would say for two, 200 years, did not really know how to assimilate the new world. Here it was, uh, the climate was very different, the people were very different, to a great extent 
to begin with anyway, the geography uh, was very different. Several people thought they were the lost tribe of Israel who'd come to uh, the Americas in a different way. Um, some people uh, felt they were um, Jews, as I've said, and that uh, from from Israel. Uh, other people thought that they'd uh, come from Africa, but mm. indirectly. Um, people simply didn't know, to begin with, how to uh, assimilate them. Uh, many people looked upon them as barbarians, and there was a big debate in Spain as to whether they were capable of receiving God's grace, in which case they should be treated in one way, mm. or whether they were incapable of receiving God's grace, in which case it was okay to kill them and enslave them. And that was a very big debate. Um, but obviously, we, as we now know, they were looked down upon by the early conquist conquistadors to such extent that many of their sacred writings were destroyed, which is a terrible loss to all of us, uh, that we don't know, you know, to a large extent what they believed in or what the details of their belief systems were. We know that they had one or two different systems of agriculture, and of course many of the New World plants, the maize in particular, but also the potato hmm. and the tomato, all of which did not exist in the old world until the new world was discovered, have been fantastic uh, foodstuffs that now, of course, feed people all over the world. And um, are there any similarities, I know it's not quite the same, between, say, Australia and the Aboriginal people there and other places where people were cut off for long periods of time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that um, there are there are, the answer to that is yes and no. Um, in Australia, when they were colonised by the Europeans, um, I don't think that the, the Australians had domesticated any animals and maybe one or two plants. They were still Stone Age people. Mm. There was no real... They had not really discovered metal. So uh, there are similarities in the sense that the Australians were behind. Uh, but of course Australia is very cut off. Uh, but I think you have to imagine, I mean, the Australian um, archaeologist Peter Bellwood, who uh, was one of the people I consulted in the course of my researches, I mean, he makes the point that, okay, the Australians lacked all these things, but in terms of quality of life, they were, they were pretty good hmm. because they had plenty to eat uh, and drink and there was very few, very little in the way of wars. Um, and, you know, civilization is not necessarily the end of history. Hmm. Um, the, in North America, because there was so much food in the way of either bison for the, the people on the Grand Prairies or salmon for those up on the northeast coast, sorry, northwest coast, um, they never developed beyond chiefdoms because they didn't need to. You know, there was no yeah. uh, food shortages that needed them to organise. I mean, the, the most recent research now seems to suggest that um, people, civilizations were created 
in the old world because the monsoon was weakening the land was drying and people had to come together in cities for irrigate irrigatory purposes mm. and that's why the first cities formed then the monsoon seems to have gone on drying uh, and so even cities could not cope so the cities broke up so uh, you know lots of lots of views are changing at the moment as to why various cultural artifacts came into existence uh, in the in the antiquity and then dissipated and when you these two worlds collided like the new world and the old world how easy was it for, say, people in the New World to assimilate all these Old World ideas that were very conflicting with what they had? Well, I don't think it was very uh, easy at all. I mean, I think that the Aztecs thought that the uh, Spanish were ogres, I mean, to begin with, because they had a legend about um, an old ruler coming back on, across the sea to rescue them. They thought that the conquistadors were them, hmm. but they were pretty quickly disabuse of that because the conquistadors were just as cruel as everybody else um, but no they uh, the, the Aztecs thought that anybody who ate a cow would turn into a cow they uh, they they disliked everything I mean they were treated very badly by the Spanish as we know it's now called the black legend um, where they had you know women were forced to uh, not eat, pregnant women were forced to not eat so their, their milk dried up and their babies died, a very cruel way hmm. of, of treating people, you hear of natives in Florida having their noses and their lips cut off as a punishment for speaking too much and so forth, there are uh, terrible stories uh, not to mention all the, the sacred texts uh, that were burned which, which I've all already mentioned, so they I think that the, the the people were in awe of the early conquistadors for a while, but then it became horrific. Mm. And then, even later, and it's not generally realised, you know, the in introduction of disease, European diseases into the New World was devastating. Europe, the, the Europeans, over long years of living with domesticated mammals like cows and sheep goats and pigs, the horses, uh, humans share various diseases with these large mammals because we are a large mammal. Hmm. And we have developed over the years an immunity to various diseases. Um, of course, when the Europeans got to the Americas, they met people who'd never had any contact with um, the large mammals of the old world and so it never had any contact with the diseases and if you go back the fact that they came across into the Americas through the Bering Strait which is in the Arctic Circle um, the fact that they spent several hundred years or maybe a thousand or two thousand years uh, up in the Arctic Circle the cold there would have killed off any microbes that they had brought with them from the new world, the old world mammals. Mm. And so they were a kind of virgin population, if you like. And of course, when they then met uh, the conquistadors and their followers uh, who carried 
all these diseases, the antibodies for these diseases, but had themselves developed an immunity, then these diseases were let loose uh, amongst the Amer American, Native Americans. As we know, it decimated the population, and in some areas the population was reduced by, according to the the figures by 97%, they're only 3% of the people who survived. It was disastrous. So really, for the new world, it was a real misfortune to encounter the old world. Well, it was. Um, you know, people have written books about the fact that um, people in the new world were cleaner than the people who came across on the boats, that their clothes are more comfortable, uh, that they were more loving as parents, all of these things. I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's hard to tell uh, because a lot of these things are always written with an attitude or mm. with a bias to prove that the winners were the worst people in the possible world or the, the invaders were the... Well, obviously the people who invaded, there were some very cruel ones and there were many uh, clerics who took a very stern view of the sacred writings and destroyed them but then realised their mistake and that if we were only if we were to ever understand these people, then we had to rescue whatever knowledge there there was. But I do think yes. I mean, I think that uh, from the point of view of the New World peoples, the arrival of the Old World peoples was a disaster. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. That was Peter Watson. His book, The Great Divide, History and Human Nature in the Old World and the New, has just been published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You'll find a feature by Peter Watson exploring the subject in the February issue of BBC History magazine on sale 31st January in the UK. Last year, a brand new museum opened in Bristol, which incidentally is where the BBC History magazine editorial offices are based. So to note this fact, I contacted the museum and inquired of them what was the strangest object in their collection. 
They came back to me with an interesting answer, so I popped over to the museum and met up with curator Gail Boyle in front of the artefact in question. Here's what she told me. To all intents and purposes, what you're looking at is a large leather-bound book. It probably measures about uh, 18 to 20 20 inches um, in height and probably about the same in width. Um, It's got gold-coloured lettering on the front and you can see the remains of the binding. Um, If you didn't know what this book was, you'd just think that it was an antiquarian book. It dates to the 1820s. Um, But the most significant thing about this book is that it's not leather that's made from an animal skin, it's leather that's made from human skin, and it's made from the skin of a convicted murderer whose name was John Hallwood. Okay, and on the cover we've got the Latin text there which I think uh, says something along those lines, doesn't it? It says, Cutis Vera Johannes Hallwood, which translates as the actual skin of John Hallwood. So... Fairly, fairly ghoulish. And fairly ghoulish. And, um, you know, when we took it out of the box to put it on display, people who didn't know that it was human skin that had been turned into leather simply thought of it as a book. But as soon as you get that little bit of information, suddenly it becomes a, oh, I really don't like that idea. Um, or it smells really strange. Now, having dealt with lots of ancient dead bodies, if you like, particularly mummies, Mm. um, I can tell you that actually it just smells like a normal leather book, and it's all of that imagination, really, of those people that that came into play that day. Does it have any other different characteristics to a normal skin-bound book? Does it feel in any way different? It doesn't feel, it doesn't smell any different to me, it just smells like an old book. But I think as soon as you realise, or people have realised, that it's human skin that's been tanned, Mm -hmm. um, it takes on a different guise. So uh, inside the book, the book itself contains a whole series of papers that were collected by a surgeon called Richard Smith. Richard Smith Jr. um, was a surgeon at Bristol Infirmary, as it was then, it's now Bristol Royal Infirmary. And at the time John Hallwood was convicted of murder and then hanged, um, the law basically had added a little bit to the punishment of hanging because there'd been so many murder cases in the mid um, 18th century. They wanted to add another mark of infamy and also to try and make the punishment seem more terrible. And as surgeons couldn't legally acquire dead bodies for anatomy or medical research, um, the bodies of executed criminals could be given to surgeons to dissect. So they were a legal source of bodies. Um, And obviously Richard Smith wanted to do that. The body was released to him and according to the records, he then anatomised John Hallwood in front of his students over a six-day period, which I find quite incredible because if you know anything about the ways that bodies decay, by the sixth day they are pretty nasty. even if you're not dissecting them. And what he said in his notes about that process was that at the time he was doing that dissection to give a lecture to his students, um, the skin, John Hallwood's skin, was in a tub being prepared for tanning. Now that's the unusual part of it because that's not part of the punishment. What exactly led Richard Smith to do that? I have no idea. It's not recorded what his motivation was. But he obviously had a peculiar fascination with this particular case because he'd also been the person who'd operated on John Hallwood's supposed victim. And she was a young woman called Eliza Balsam. And John Hallwood um, was fond of her and she'd spurned his uh, attention. And so one day he threw a stone 
Um, it had caused her to trip and fall over. Didn't hit her on the head. She banged her head when she fell over. She got up, walked home. Um, she had her wound dressed with ointment. Um, and then when she became more ill, she actually walked into the Bristol Infirmary for treatment. And they decided that she developed an abscess. And it was agreed that Richard Smith would operate on Eliza Balsam. And um, she probably died as a result of that operation. I see, I see. So he's, he's very so much involved in this case. So he is the person that received the body for dissection. He's the person that acted as a chief witness at the... Um, at the trial, and he's also the person that collected together all of the trial notes. So something else, it's not necessarily peculiar of a person at that time, he collected scrapbooks. A lot of what we know about the history of the Royal Infirmary comes from John, uh, comes from Richard Smith's books. Right. So he collected scrapbooks, newspaper cuttings, notes and things like that. So inside this book, we have copies of the brief to do with the trial, we have copies of the invoice for tanning the skin and turning it into le leather. We've got pictures, sketches that were done of John Hallward when he was on trial. Um, the story of the murder, um, all bound together in a book which he's kept. So in, you know, in one sense you, you think that this is a really strange scrapbook to keep, but it really ought to be seen against the background of a whole series of scrapbooks that he was keeping. Okay. And Hallward, as you said, was hanged. Hallward was hanged. Bristol Jail. And is Am I, am I being? Am I reading too much into this? But does the edge here look a little bit like a yes, hangman's? Yes, it does. Sorry. It has a hangman's um, gibbet. Yeah. Um, but really, he was hanged from the drop, which had been newly installed at Bristol New Jail. And so there are lots of connections with Emshed and the New Jail because the New Jail occupied the site immediately behind this one. Right. And at the moment, until a new development appears behind us, you can still see the gatehouse for the new jail, and you can still see where the drop was. Through the car park. Through the car park, yes, um, where John Horwood was hanged. And another little kind of like snippet, he was the first person to be executed for murder at that new jail. So on the 13th of April in 1821, he was the first one that they used the drop for. And according to the account of that... He was given the choice about um, when he was actually hung. He was given a, a white handkerchief to wave when he was ready. And he prayed for a while, and it took him 20 minutes before he waved the handkerchief, um, and then he was hung. Okay. And there's a, there's a little coda to the story as well, isn't there? Because his, his skeleton was retained in, in Bristol University for... for for years afterwards, and it's only recently been reburied in East Bristol. That's right. So his skeleton was used for teaching purposes. It remained in a cupboard. It was passed over to the university for teaching. Um, people got interested in this story again. He hasn't got any direct descendants, but there are descendants of the Hallwood family who then realised that his skeleton was kept at the university. Um, and they wanted, I think, to bring his story to the fore, because if you think about it in, term, in our terms today... The chances of John Hallward being convicted of murder for that particular sequence of events would be very small, might be convicted of manslaughter, certainly wouldn't have received a punishment like the one that was exacted upon him, and his skeleton wouldn't have been retained for teaching. So uh, on April the 13th this year, his body was interred in a cemetery at Hannam with a short service attended by descendants of that particular family. Okay. Now, this object is odd. I, I will grant you that. It is clearly odd. It's not unique, though, is it? Because there are other books that are bound with human skin. And I think that there may be a term for it, which, if I'm correct in pronunciation, is anthropodermic bibliopagy. I'll believe you. 
Um, and there's, there's certainly been a, there's a book which has just been um, put on show down in Devon in Exeter of a, yes. of a murderer called um, George Cudmore who was um, who was who was, had the same fate around about the same time. So this this informs us about a couple of aspects of the 19th century, I suppose, doesn't it? One justice and two science, yes. because there was there was there was this sort of thing going on elsewhere. And the other th- the other point to bear in mind, I suppose, is that. 1821 was just a decade or so prior to the Burke and Hare murders up yes. in Edinburgh, where yes. bodies were actively, you know, sought out for this this um, this, this practice, so that so that cadavers could be used for anatomical research. Um, so, so it helps us to understand those two. It aspects, helps us it? to understand that. In fact, if you look at there's a, a history of Bristol Royal Infirmary, which was written by George Monroe Smith in the middle of the 19th century, and he used a lot of Richard. Uh, Richard Smith's um, notes to make that. There's a whole chapter in there about body snatching during that period of time, whole loads of cases in Bristol. But he also tells us that um, the surgeons themselves were getting into trouble for this because they couldn't legally acquire these bodies. They were being prosecuted. And there were 200 medical men and students in Bristol who petitioned Parliament um, to try and bring an end to this and to try and find some resolution for anatomy research to take place. And partly that petition resulted in the Anatomy Act of 1832, which then allowed people um, to give permission for bodies to be dissected for medical research. Um, so there's, a, there's that aspect to it. So, you know, if you're interested in medical research and where people got their information from, um, then that's one strand of it. The thing I find most fascinating about John Horwood is not that this book is bound in human skin, but the numbers of historical avenues that you can take in terms of finding out about people and their lives at that particular time. So it's the medical research. It's what was happening in hospitals and how hospitals were provided. You know, this was a charity. People were elected. Uh, surgeons were appointed. At this time, there was no operating theatre in the Royal Infirmary. And, and actually, what we've got in show behind the book is the first operating table, which consists of a table, a sideboard, that Richard Smith took into the, the infirmary to do his operations on, and it was there for 100 years. Right. Um, so it's kind of like, what kind of equipment were they using in terms of hospitals? And then also Bristol New Jail. Bristol New Jail was a state-of-the-art prison that was constructed. And for the first time, uh, a prison gave single-sex cells to uh, men and women. Before that, certainly in the Newgate prison in Bristol, 14 and 15 people could be kept in a cell together in really vile, disgusting, and described as hellhole kind of conditions. The Bristol New Jail changed all of that, and it became a model for the way that other jails were built around the country. Um, So there's all of that aspect of crime and punishment and what's appropriate in terms of prisoners and justice. Okay, so we've got crime, punishment, human interest and medical science. Exactly. All bound up up in this one book. That was Gail Boyle, Senior Collections Officer for Archaeology for Bristol Museums, Galleries and Archives. The John Hallwood book is on display at Bristol's Emshed Museum and the website for that is mshed.org. There is also a short piece on this subject on our website at historyextra.com slash Hallwood. That's all for this time. Next week we'll be considering the relative merits of the ancient Greeks and Romans. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you, as ever, for listening.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.